You're listening to Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN. Pat O'Keefe, happy to be sitting in for the guys on this Labor Day. Hope everyone's having a great weekend. It's a gorgeous day outside in the New York City area after a, kind of a bummer of a day yesterday, uh, especially uh, in the South Bronx, right around 161st Street, where the Yankees just added added to their long uh, and distinguished list of absolutely brutal losses in 2021. And this one had a different feel uh, because it wasn't kind of thrown away or taken from them or grabbed away from them at the very end of the game, but painful nonetheless. And you just wonder, what is the tipping point going to be? Um, How many of these losses uh, are they going to be able to endure before they suffer one too many of these losses and they're home early in October? Because I think we're getting to that point. And the other concerning thing about the Yankees is you're also getting to the point, and it's amazing we're talking about this barely a week after they were on a 13-game winning streak. A friend of mine texted me yesterday, Yankee fan, knows what he's talking about. He says, it's amazing and actually impressive how it took the Yankees basically a week to render a 13-game winning streak irrelevant. But that's, that's essentially what they did. Now, you could take the opposite side of that and say, well, yeah, the 13-game winning streak allowed them to go through this down spell, but you can't be going through this down spell at this point of the season. You know why? Because the first two and a half to three months were a down spell where you were blowing games late, where you were not hitting the ball and finding any consistency on offense, and where you were hovering above the 500 mark, just barely staying afloat. What the 13-game winning streak allowed you to do was get back into the pennant race, get into a position of strength in the standings, and give you an opportunity to maybe even chase down the division-leading Tampa Bay Rays. But a little more than a week after that winning streak came to an end, that's gone. The Rays are gone. The Rays don't lose. They actually lost yesterday, but they don't lose. And now all of a sudden you got to turn around again, Yankee fans. And you got to see that the Red Sox are a half game behind you in the standings. And you got to see that the Seattle Mariners have gotten hot here in September. And they're only three and a half games behind the Yankees, not behind Boston. They're three and a half games behind the Yankees. So what does that mean? That means the Yankees are three and a half games away from not even making it into the postseason. A week and a half ago, we weren't thinking about that. At the end of that winning streak, it was about, hey, Can you keep this up? The Rays have to lose at some point. We got the Orioles coming up on our schedule. We got the Rangers coming up on our schedule. We got the Indians coming up on our schedule. Let's make a run at this division and stay out of that wild card game. Now you're fighting tooth and nail just to host the wild card game as opposed to playing it in Fenway Park. And God forbid you don't even make it because you got a four game series this week against the Toronto Blue Jays starting today. And there are four games behind you. So that could get interesting. That could get interesting real quickly. Toronto just swept Oakland over the weekend. So they're both tied in the standings. And they're both four games behind the Yankees. With four games for the Blue Jays and their powerful lineup. And is there a lineup you'd rather face less right now if you're the Yankees pitching staff? It's basically Garrett Cole. And that's it. That's it right now. And Garrett Cole doesn't even give you length. And I talked about this yesterday on my show. Garrett Cole, as good as he's been, and I think he is the front runner for the AL Cy Young Award right now, even he doesn't give you length. 
But he's a nine-inning pitcher compared to four and two-thirds to five and a third innings for Jordan Montgomery, for Jamison Tyone. I understand Corey Kluber is now two starts back from spending a couple of months on the injured list. They're still working up his pitch count. So he's giving you two short outings. You hope that changes. But listen, you got three weeks, three and a half weeks to go in the regular season. You're breaking in Corey Kluber, basically almost from scratch because he was on the IL for so long. Tyone, who was terrific the middle two months of the season and helped carry the rotation, he's come crashing back to earth. Montgomery's good, but he's not that good, and he's not giving you any length. And that, of course, leads to the biggest problem on this team that played itself out again yesterday, and that is the Yankees' bullpen. And that's the reason why, even if the Yankees do hold on over these last three and a half weeks of the regular season and make it into the playoffs, how far can they possibly go with the rotation in the bullpen the way it is right now? How far? How much confidence do you have? I mean, for a generation of Yankee fans watching this team in the postseason, you needed to get to the seventh or eighth inning with a lead. And then that was it. And that was a long time ago. And it's not just Mariano Rivera. After Mo retired, you had good guys in that closer position. It has never been as weak as it is right now since before Mariano. B.M. Before Mariano. This is the worst the bullpen slash closer situation has been for the Yankees since then. So what kind of confidence do you have in the bullpen? Now, yesterday, I had an interesting show. I actually, uh, on the air yesterday morning, um, had about as rough a show as the Yankees had a game at Yankee Stadium yesterday. We talked a lot about the team. Uh, I had a couple of strong points and strong takes. Number one, it's time at the end of the season to move on from Gary Sanchez. I think the uh, Yankees and the Yankee fan, uh, those that are, are still hopeful that you can salvage something, I think you're just still holding on to what he did in 2016 and 2017 when he came up to the majors and hit home runs at an historic pace. But since then, he's been a sub-200 hitter. Not a sub-250 hitter, not a sub-230 hitter. He's been a sub-200 hitter. I still say at the end of the season, it is time to move on from Gary Sanchez at the catcher position, but that take certainly did not have a very long shelf life yesterday as Sanchez was the entire Yankees offense hitting two home runs, including a grand slam, and driving in six runs out of the number nine hole, by the way. So that take did not age well. It it aged poorly about an hour after I made it yesterday morning. The other one, and this this has longer-term ramifications um, for the Yankees, and this is more illustrative of why they are in trouble and why they are not a threat, in my opinion, even if they do get into October. I had a caller, and I don't know if he's listening right now, but if if you are, and I I forget who it was... um, But you were right, and I was wrong, and here's why. I had a caller say, why is Andrew Heaney on this roster in the Yankees' bullpen and not Luis Heal? Now, Heal has pitched three games, he's made three starts, and he's yet to allow an earned run as a Yankees starting pitcher. Uh, Incredible start to his career, but he's in the minor leagues right now. Andrew Heaney is eating up a roster spot in the bullpen. I made the case that, look, Heal's a young guy. You're still not 100% sure that this is the kind of pitcher who he is. Heaney's got more experience. Uh, He's probably more adaptable to bouncing back and forth between the starting rotation and the bullpen, which is kind of the role the Yankees need for him right now. Of course, this was me talking 24 hours ago. And then Andrew Heaney goes out and throws gasoline on the fire in that Yankees-Orioles game yesterday, giving up a three-run lead and giving up the lead entirely 
which led to the Yankees' 8-7 loss. So I had a rough morning yesterday. Mea culpa right here. Uh, But hey, it happens. We all have our rough days. And the Yankees certainly did. But it it leads to a larger question, right? What what are these Yankees? All right? Um, It's a team that even during the 13-game winning streak has been carried by two or three hot bats. Judge and Stanton. Yesterday, they were carried by Gary Sanchez. I mean, even yesterday. They scored seven runs. Six of them were driven in by one guy. What did the rest of the lineup do? The day before... And by the way, this is the Orioles, the worst pitching rotation in Major League Baseball. The day before yesterday, the Yankees didn't even pick up their first base hit until the seventh inning. And then the day before that, they were lucky to beat the Orioles. They were lucky to not get swept this weekend by the worst team in baseball. That's just something that's unacceptable at this time of the year. And it wasn't a fluke. What you saw from the Yankees this weekend is what I'm afraid the Yankees might actually be unless they shake out of it. It's an inconsistent offense with too many guys in that lineup that are not producing. And it's a bullpen that right now, especially with Jonathan Loisega, your best relief pitcher on the injured list, and he's not, he's not just on the 10-day IL. He's not going to pick up a baseball for 10 days. So let's just say best case scenario, Loisega picks up a baseball 10 days from now, then he needs another week to build back up his arm strength. So we're talking 17 days. Today's the 6th or the 7th, whatever it is. You're not going to see this guy until like the 23rd or the 24th. Best case scenario, you have your best relief pitcher back for the final week of the regular season. So what are you going to do between now and then? Because the other thing this Yankees team is, it's a team with a bullpen that just right now can't get you to the finish line. And there's too much inconsistency. Chapman was great early in the season, and then he went through a really rough stretch, one of the roughest stretches of his career. He went away for a while. He came back off the injured list. He was shaky at first, and then he seemed to find his groove. But once again, Chapman is back to where you have no confidence in him. Chad Green, he's probably your best guy right now. But he's been up and down. Now, for Green, the the downs have been really bad. We remember the Houston game with Jose Altuve. We remember a blown save right after the All-Star break in Fenway Park in that brooks Krisky game. So the downs have had a spotlight on them because they've come in really, really big spots for Chad Green. But overall, it's been more good than bad. And that's it. Zach Britton's gone. You hoped to have Darren O'Day. He's gone. And now you got all these young guys and... Who's going to who's going to get those outs for you? Because every game you got a starting pitcher giving you 15, 16, 13 outs, and that's it. So where are those outs coming from in the bullpen? If you don't have Loisega, if you don't trust Chapman, if Chad Green is your most reliable guy out there, where are those outs coming from? And what if you don't get Loisega back? Because that shoulder strain where he can't even pick up a baseball for 10 days, that doesn't sound very good. So what if you don't have him back in the postseason? What are you going to do? How are you going to close out a wild card game in Fenway Park? Let's just say Judge and or Stan hit a couple of balls over the Green Monster in that wild card game in Fenway Park. And Garrett Cole's on the mound for the Yankees and he gives you six and two thirds innings. Who's getting you those final seven outs? Is it Chapman? Is it Green? Is Loisaga going to be healthy? So that's why it might not even matter. You know, those 13 games in a row that the Yankees won, 
was it a mirage? It, it might have been. Because if you examine those games, even during that stretch, at no point did they ever have the offense fully clicking. That 13-game winning streak was a result of two or three or four bats in the lineup getting hot, led by Judge and Stanton. Luke Voigt was hot. Brett Gardner played well. They had excellent starting pitching from Cole to Tyone to Nestor Cortez to Jordan Montgomery. And they were the beneficiaries of some good fortune. And that adds up to a 13-game winning streak. If you ask me right now, are the Yankees closer to that version or this current version that just lost a series to the Baltimore Orioles? I would say the Yankees are closer to this current version. Because for the majority of this season, for the majority of 2021, the Yankees have more closely resembled the Yankees that we saw on the field yesterday. And that's not a team that's going to win in October. Frankly, that's not even a team that deserves to play in October. And you know what? If this continues, it's a team that might not be playing in October. And that, that would be an absolute disaster. Considering the expectations at the beginning of the season, they were the American League favorite to go to the World Series. Considering the fortifications they made to the roster at the trade deadline, the capital they gave up for Joey Gallo, for Anthony Rizzo. And if that team, despite all of that, still doesn't even make it into a wild card game, my goodness, that would be an absolute disaster. So the Yankees looking to bounce back here this afternoon. Uh, They're at Yankee Stadium Labor Day uh, as they start a four-game series at home against the Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, DJ LeMahieu, Joey Gallo batting second and left, Aaron Judge in right. Stanton is the DH today, uh, which means Rizzo is at first base batting fifth. Gary Sanchez is catching. He's up to sixth in the order. Glaber Torres is at short. Brett Gardner in center. And Gio Urshela is at third base. Jamison Tyone on the mound against Hunjin Ryu. The Mets, uh, 1 o'clock game in Washington, wrapping up their lengthy wraparound weekend series. Trevor Williams making the start for the Mets against Patrick Corbin. Mets are taking care of business. They're doing exactly what they need to do against the worst two teams in their division. They have four more games, one against Washington today, and then three against Miami, and then the schedule Gets a whole lot tougher for the Mets. But right now, coming off that stretch against the Giants and the Dodgers, the Mets against the Marlins and the Nationals are doing exactly what they need to do. They have put themselves back in position where a three-game losing streak by the Braves or four out of five losses by the Braves can vault the Mets right up near the top of the NLE. So a long way to go for the Mets. They've done a great job recovering from that rough stretch against the California teams, especially with all the other noise going on around with the Baez and Lindor thing, with the Zach Scott thing. Everything that's happened, the Mets continue to do what they... And by the way, that's what Tampa Bay does. That's why Tampa Bay's got the best record in the American League. They went 18-1 and against the Orioles. They beat up on the Twins. They beat up on the bad teams. The Yankees are unable to do that. The Mets have been doing that since the All-Star break, and it has made a huge difference. You're listening to Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN. We got two pennant races in New York for now. We've got NFL starting on Thursday. NFL starting for the Giants and the Jets on Sunday. 
Both winnable games, by the way. Wouldn't it be nice? Seriously, think about this, because I, I think it's been so long since we've even considered this a possibility. Wouldn't it be nice if the Giants and Jets both won next week? I mean, let's be honest. They're not playing against, you know, the Jets aren't playing in Baltimore against the Ravens and, and the Giants are in Tampa Bay against the Buccaneers. I mean, the Giants are playing against the Broncos at home. That's a game when you look at the schedule, you, I don't know if there's any games the Giants should win. Well, there's a few. I don't know if I'm, I would say they should win, but they could win. I mean, if you're going to be a serious contender in the NFC East, this is a game that you win on your home field. Same thing with the Jets, and I don't think the Jets are expected to contend in the AFC East. But if the Jets look at their schedule, one of their more winnable games is against the Panthers team that hasn't gone to the playoffs in recent years. That, by the way, is anything but settled at the quarterback position because there's no team that knows that more than the New York Jets because it's Sam Darnold. So look, wouldn't it be great if we're sitting here a week from today, next Monday, Barton Hahn or chatting? Michael Kay show coming up after that, talking about a pair of one and O teams in New York. I mean, I just think we're, <laughs> I think we're all fans, broadcasters, hosts, whoever, everybody who follows this in New York is just so conditioned to not expect that. It's just been, we, we, we've been beaten down. We've been beaten down for far too long. So what are your expectations for the Giants and for the Jets? 1-800-919-3776. So we'll get your Yankees and Mets calls in as well. But if you look at the Giants' schedule, and there's two important things that the Giants have to keep in mind this season, that they have to take advantage of. And one of them I mentioned with Jordan Renan last hour. And that's this defensive coordinator, Patrick Graham. Because... The Giants' defense was really good last year, a top-10 defense, and it kind of came out of nowhere. And I know Joe Judge, ultimately, as the head coach, you know his culture changing had a lot to do with how the team played overall, their competitiveness, and, and that obviously had a hand in how the defense played. But ultimately, the defense played as well as it did because of the defensive coordinator, Patrick Graham. An incredibly impressive coach. So if he does that again, and that's the hope, because if the Giants' defense plays that well, if not better this season, then I think it's reasonable to expect that the Giants are contending for the division championship. But if Patrick Graham and the Giants' defense does that again, guess what? Patrick Graham's not here next year. I mean, he will be an NFL head coach if he does that again. So you want to take advantage of that because you don't know how much longer you're going to have this guy as part of your staff. So that's number one. The other thing you've got to take advantage of here is the schedule. Because it is not a murderer's road to start. And, and the NFL is a funny league where momentum can mean a lot. You know, you have a team that might not be expected to be that good, or they might not even think they're going to be that good. You know, maybe you enter the season thinking you're a 6-11 and team or a 7-10 and team. And then you start the season 3-0. and Well, then you start walking around and practicing and playing like a 3-0 and team. And that's completely different than a 7-10 and 10 team. You get a little bit of confidence, and then you get a little bit more confidence. And then you start to expect to win games as opposed to hope to win games. I mean, it's happened for years in the NFL. That's why we have so much turnover in terms of who makes the playoffs and who doesn't year after year. I mean, now we're up to 14 teams that make the playoffs. It's about six new teams every year that didn't make it the year before. And let's be honest, the Giants, or whoever comes out of the NFC East, because somebody does have to, has one of the easiest paths to the postseason. And you look at the schedule, you host Denver, and then 
a short week where you go to Washington on Thursday night and then you host Atlanta. Now, tell me, which of those games are you like, wow, we have no chance in that one? None of them. Honestly, none of them. Tell me I'm wrong. I, I don't think I am. I mean, I, I, I've watched this team for years. I watched the, every game last year very closely. I didn't watch two years ago because they were just so non-competitive that I, I don't think anybody could watch. But from what I know about this Giants team, none of those three games are unwinnable. So why can't you go out and win them? You have two of them at home. Um, two of them are against teams that did not go to the playoffs last year. Both of those are your home games. And then you go on the road against a team that barely won the worst division in football and that you beat twice last year. So the recipe is there to get off to a good start. And you don't want to blow that opportunity because after that, the schedule gets a lot more difficult. Then the next three games at New Orleans, at Dallas, and against the Rams. Now that's a completely different story. I mean, the Giants never play well in New Orleans. And we'll see how different things are now that Drew Brees is gone and Jameis Winston's the starting quarterback. But they still have Sean Payton. They still have those weapons. They still play in the Dome where the Giants have never played well. At Dallas, never an easy game. What are the Giants? The last, I think, four years are 2-12 and 12 against... Or the last 14 games, the Giants are 2-12 and 12 against Dallas and Philadelphia. Even last year, they couldn't beat Dallas. In Dallas, where they had an early lead and then Dak Prescott broke his ankle. Both of those wins, by the way, against... Dallas and Philadelphia came last season. So Giants always struggle there. And then you take on the Rams. Yes, it's a home game, but it's also a Rams team that's got a new quarterback and has expectations to go to the Super Bowl. A lot of people's Super Bowl pick out of the NFC. So that next gauntlet of three games is not as easy. Then you host Carolina. Okay, you should win that game if you're serious about this season. And then you go to Kansas City. And that's one of those games that you just look at the schedule. You're like, we have no chance. You go to Kansas City on a Monday night. You're not winning that game. As long as Patrick Mahomes is in the building and not on crutches, you're not winning that game. Which makes it even more important to take advantage of the winnable games. Like Las Vegas at home. Like Philadelphia at home. And then, the last four games of the schedule are also not a murderer's row. Because you finish with Dallas at home, you go to Philadelphia, and I just think Philadelphia is going to be bad this year. I actually like Jalen Hurts. I think he's pretty good. Um, I don't like the rest of their team. But I think Jalen Hurts could be their quarterback, but they're not going to be any good this year. But against Dallas at home, at Philadelphia, at Chicago, which is going to be bad, whether it's Andy Dalton or Justin Fields playing quarterback, and then your last game at home against Washington. So the first three and the last four, can you go six and one? I'm serious. I mean, Pete, Giant fans are probably driving off the road right now, but listen to me. Think about this with me. Can you go 6-1 and one in those seven games? Home Denver, at Washington, home Atlanta. Home Dallas, at Philadelphia, at Chicago, home Washington. Can you go 6-1 and one in those seven games? I mean, it, I, I, I'm having trouble hearing myself say this too because I just think it's been so long since any expectations have been put on this Giants team. But I'm not saying to go 6-1 and one against Green Bay, Tampa Bay, Pittsburgh, Baltimore, Cleveland, Kansas City, New England. That's not who I'm talking about here. So if you go 6-1 and one in those seven games, the first three of the season, the last four of the season. All right, what are you going to do with the middle 10 games? If you go 6-1, and one, how does your season look? 
How do you get to 10 and 7 if you go 6 and 1 in those games? Well, then you got to go 4 and 6 the rest of the way. That's the path to a 10 win season. That's the mathematical path to a 10 win season. The actual path we spoke about last hour with Jordan Renan. The offensive line is the key to this entire thing. And I, I, it's funny because obviously what I didn't ask Jordan about, but on ESPN.com, he gave his ceiling for the Giants and he gave his floor for the Giants. His floor was 5-12. and 12. I mean, and, and if the Giants go 5-12, and 12, they're cleaning house, except for Joe Judge. I think he survives a 5-12, and 12, but Dave Gettleman certainly does not. There's a good chance that Daniel Jones does not survive a 5-12 and 12 season. That's the worst case scenario for the Giants in the mind of the guy who covers them for our network anyway. But that would just be an outward disaster. But if that happens, and if this is it for Gettleman, and the Giants move on from him in some form or fashion after this season... He's made a lot of controversial picks and moves. I think the worst one could, if this plays out in the way that it could, with the Giants' offensive line just being completely inept again, I think his worst pick might actually be the one he made last year, Andrew Thomas. Not Saquon Barkley, and not that Barkley was a bad pick or a bad player, but when we say that Barkley was a controversial pick, it's because people don't necessarily pick running backs at number two anymore. Daniel Jones was obviously a controversial pick that has not proven Dave Gettleman to be right yet but the worst pick could end up being Andrew Thomas because the Giants went into that 2020 draft with the intention of drafting the best offensive tackle to protect Daniel Jones there were four offensive tackles who were picked among the first 13 selections in that draft and according to pro football focus and the guys who do these rankings the Giants picked the worst one and they had the first pick they were the only one who could have picked either of those four guys they could have had Tristan Wirfs. They could have had Jedrick Wills, who's on Cleveland. Wirfs won a Super Bowl with Tampa Bay. Or they could have had Makai Becton, who plays in the same stadium as Andrew Thomas. Now, it's only been one season and a very, very shaky preseason, but it does not look good early. And that could end up being the one draft pick of Dave Gettleman's that we point to as the worst, hard as that may seem, because you, you know the Barkley thing was controversial. Although that doesn't look as bad now because all the quarterbacks that they would have picked instead, Darnold or Rosen, certainly haven't made Gettleman look bad in that respect. And then the Daniel Jones, and that's kind of tied to the Andrew Thomas, which is interesting. All right, let's uh, open up the phones. 1-800-919-3776. Let's lead things off this hour with Doug on Long Island. What's going on, Doug? Hey, how are you? I'm I'm actually uh, just happy that there's some some positivity in New York across the board. The Jets, it's going to be tough for them, in my humble opinion. I'm no expert or anything, but I'm just saying because I, I just think defensively it may be really tough for them. I'm really good friends with a lot of the players that they had that were good, Mo Lewis and Marvin Jones and guys, still friends of mine to this day. And they really think defensively, in the defensive backfield, there'll be some issues. But I'm, I'm just, I don't think the Jets will be, you know, five and twelve. But you know, obviously, it will be world beaters. Just hopefully, the Giants will do well. It's, it's really nice to see the Mets getting competitive. The Yankees are obviously always competitive. The, the Brooklyn Nets are competitive, and obviously, the Knicks are competitive again, which took a long time, but it was a process there, you know. And I intimately know that because my brother was the president there until last year. So, but I, I just I just hope it goes well for 
all the New York teams since people really beat up on us a lot. So hopefully. Doug, I appreciate you checking in as always. Thanks for the call. Uh, you know, a New York sports renaissance, perhaps. And look, this is something that we've spoken about, um, you know, in recent months. And Doug laid it out. I mean, you know, most New York teams, if you look at them, the arrow is pointing upwards. Um I mean, the Nets are the best team in the NBA if they're healthy. I know, you know, New York doesn't take its sports identity from the Brooklyn Nets, um, but the Knicks are certainly on the upswing. The Islanders came within a round of the Stanley Cup two consecutive seasons. Uh, I do think the arrow is pointing up for both New York football teams. The Mets are fun right now. And you know what? The Mets, for me, are playing with house money in terms of, look, if Jacob DeGrom doesn't come back this season, the Mets aren't going to do anything in the postseason anyway. You know, my whole thing about the Mets and if they could just get into the playoffs at the beginning of the season, that was thinking, all right, you have DeGrom, Syndergaard can hopefully come back and join the rotation at some point. That's an unbelievable top two to go into a postseason series with. Well, then, you know, DeGrom, if he's not there and, and it looks like Syndergaard best case scenario and, and with this COVID thing, who even knows what's going to happen now? But best case scenario, he would only be an arm out of the bullpen. So that kind of went by the wayside. But yet the Mets are three and a half games out of the division lead. So they're a fun story. If they can continue to put pressure on the Braves and put pressure on the Phillies and try and get that division championship. Uh, speaking of the Mets, this New York sports desk is brought to you by Tullamore Dew Irish Whiskey. And the Mets are underway uh, at Nationals Park, the uh, finale of their wraparound weekend series with um, Patrick Corbin on the mound for Washington. The Mets won again yesterday, 13-6. to uh, After today's game, a three-game series in Miami. Trevor Williams is pitching for the Mets today. Yankees already off to a rough start at the stadium. Uh, top of the first against the Blue Jays. Toronto leads 1-0. Jamison Tyone on the mound. An excellent pitcher going for Toronto, Hunjin Ryu. Uh, Vlad Guerrero just sent one into the right field seats. So it is now, <laughs> wow, it's 2 nothing, uh Toronto in uh, the top of the first inning. One out recorded and two runs allowed so far for Jamison Tyone, uh, starting for a team that has an incredibly taxed bullpen. So basically what Tyone has done right now is probably the exact opposite of how the Yankees would have drawn things up this afternoon. That's the New York Sports Desk brought to you by Tullamore Dew. When it's game time, it's Tully time. Be sure to grab Tullamore Dew Irish Whiskey during tonight's action. Glasses up to enjoying Tullamore Dew responsibly. Pat O'Keefe in for Barton Hahn. Labor Day. Hope everyone's enjoying. 1-800-919-3776. Let's go to Charles in Newark. What's going on, Charles? Hey, how's it going? I'm good. So, uh... I just want to talk. I know we blame a lot of this on Gettleman, and don't get me wrong, I'm not a Gettleman fan by any means. But let's not act like Jerry Reese was really moving the needle with his draft picks either. I mean, let's not forget the dumpster fire that was Eric Flowers. Justin Pugh never really turned into what you want a first round pick for. Like, things have been going off for the Giants in the draft for a long time. I think we need to really, real evaluate either. If it's the personnel in the, the scouting department or, I mean, you know, you can talk about David Wilson. It just goes back and back and back, the amount of high draft picks that have never really panned out to be franchise players for the Giants. I mean, you had Jason Pierre-Paul, you had Odell Beckham. But at this point, maybe Nisimara needs to step back and say he's not the person to be hiring this position. And I know dealing with the ego of an owner, that's probably not something that's going to ever happen. 
But we, I mean, this poor drafting thing has been going on my entire life as a Giants fan. Maybe not in fire yet, Kiwanuka and Tuck, but like, it's been a long time of bad drafting. Charles, thanks for the call. Uh, it's a good point. Jerry Reese's last few drafts were not good, and that is what led the Giants to this position uh, to begin with. Um, the coaching hires were not good. You know, I, I think they moved on from Tom Coughlin prematurely. You know, if you're going to move on from a guy like Tom Coughlin, and I think Mark Cuban said this recently, uh, because look, Rick Carlisle was the Dallas Mavericks head coach for a long time, and he won the championship in 2011 and never won another playoff series. And they finally moved on from Rick Carlisle after this past season. He's in Indiana now. But Mark Cuban always said, if you're going to move on from a guy like Rick Carlisle with his resume and, and what he's done, you better have somebody in mind that you think is going to do a better job. And in this case with Dallas, they had Jason Kidd, which makes sense. Kidd has done okay as a head coach. Uh, he obviously has a connection to Dallas. He was the starting point guard on that championship team for Rick Carlisle. And, you know, sometimes it is time for a change. But the Tom Coughlin thing, I just think they completely, the Giants were just enamored with Ben McAdoo. And that's where things started to go off the rails for this franchise. You know, the Giants looked around the NFL, and I don't know exactly who the names were at the time, but I know who the names are right now. You know, um, these young, bright, um, you know, innovative, offensive coaches. And right now, you know, it's Sean McVay, and it's Kyle Shanahan, um, and it's Matt LaFleur, and it's guys like that. Well, the Giants, and before those guys came along, the Giants looked around the NFL and saw other teams starting to hire guys like that. So the Giants thought they had that in Ben McAdoo. They didn't. They completely misjudged what Ben McAdoo was. Now, could Ben McAdoo have been a uh, creative play caller in some sense? Yeah, but what they miscalculated was his complete inability to manage the locker room. To the point where he was here for two years, he went to the playoffs one of those two years and was still fired before the end of his second season. Do you know how difficult that is to do for a franchise with the stability of the Giants? So let's recap what happened there. All right, Coughlin goes 6-10, and 6-10, and 6-10, and, and the Giants move on from him for Ben McAdoo, and that's where things went wrong. And then McAdoo lasted less than two full seasons. So now the Giants need to start another coaching search. And they couldn't get Josh McDaniels. They wanted Matt Patricia. They wanted him. And he didn't want to come to New York. So they end up with their third choice in Pat Shermer, who I didn't know it was possible until Pat Shermer put on a headset at MetLife Stadium, was 10 times worse at managing a team than Ben McAdoo. So they compounded the mistake by forcing out Coughlin prematurely. You know what? You got to make sure you have the right guy to assume control if you're going to push the legend out. And they didn't. They completely miscalculated the Ben McAdoo thing. He was gone less than two years later. They didn't get their top choice. They didn't get their second choice. They panicked and hired Pat Shermer, who was worse than McAdoo. It was two seasons of non-competitive football. And only last year, only last year with Joe Judge and Patrick Graham, did they start to get their feet on solid ground again. But now the issue is, do they have the right personnel for these guys? And I don't know. At the most important positions, 
There's no one you can point to and say, yeah, he's the right guy. Daniel Jones? No, we don't know. Andrew Thomas? We don't know. The offensive line as a whole? We don't know. We don't even know about the skill position guys. They sound great on paper, but we haven't seen Kadarius Toney in preseason. We haven't seen Kenny Galladay since the beginning of August. We haven't seen Saquon Barkley since week two of last year. We haven't seen Kyle Rudolph. Evan Ingram, he's hurt again. So do they have the right personnel? I don't know. Now, the drafting hasn't been all bad. I think Gettleman's done a pretty good job adding depth to the defense. The depth plus Patrick Graham equals one of the better defenses in the NFL equals the strength of this Giants team. You're listening to Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN. But Jeter goes into the Hall of Fame on Wednesday. Uh, He was supposed to go in last year. And of course, the ceremonies in Cooperstown were postponed by a year because of the coronavirus pandemic. You know, so I've been obviously thinking back, um, you know, a lot through his career, uh, you know, obviously some of his moments and and reading and, and watching some of the interviews. And he had a press conference the other day. Uh, where he kind of shared some thoughts on his career. You know, it, it's he, he's obviously a, a clear-cut first ballot Hall of Famer. He very nearly became uh, the second person to ever be unanimously inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. He fell one vote shy of that. It, it's, it's funny because, and I think part of this is obviously the teams that he was on. You know, so many uh, great players on his teams. And look, other than Mariano Rivera, he's the most clear-cut Hall of Famer of, on all of those teams. No question about it. But the fact that they played in New York, the fact that they won, you know, four out of five World Series championships, the fact that he was always in the middle of the spotlight. I mean, he played his entire career in the middle of the spotlight. I mean, you think about you think about a guy like Don Mattingly, who in the 1980s, Don Mattingly for a four or five-year stretch was the best player in baseball. He won batting titles, he won RBI titles, he won an MVP, he won gold gloves, he was arguably the greatest defensive first baseman of his era, right up there with Keith Hernandez, they were the best two. Um, but Mattingly got to the Yankees literally a year after they had gone to the World Series, and then they didn't go back to the playoffs until Mattingly's final season where he was brilliant in that five-game loss to the Seattle Mariners. But so much of what makes you great or what makes you immortal, so much of it is about timing. I mean, if Don Matt, Don Mattingly, his era and Derek Jeter's era were completely different. And yeah, you could say that Jeter was a big reason why from 1995, when he joined the Yankees, to the end of his career, they went to the playoffs almost every single season. Yeah, you could say Jeter was a big part of that. He was a big part of that, but he wasn't the only reason. And because of the way Jeter's career played out, he had the opportunity to be in the spotlight so many times. And I can't think of a Hall of Famer, baseball Hall of Famer, I really can't, from the last quarter century, who had so many... I mean, think about how many plays and think about how many moments that Derek Jeter produced during the course of his career that we can refer to by like one or two words. You know, the flip. You know what that means. 2001, ALDS, Game 3 in Oakland. Yankees one loss from elimination. Shane Spencer overthrows the cutoff man. Jeter swoops in grabs the ball, and backhands it to Jorge Posada, who tags out Jeremy Giambi. But you say the flip to any baseball fan, not even a Yankee fan, you say the flip to any baseball fan, they know what it is. 
You know, the dive. When you talk about Jeter, the dive. That's the game against the Red Sox in 2004, I believe, when Jeter dives headfirst into the stands, comes up bloodied uh, in that classic, I think, 12-inning Yankees-Red Sox game during the height of their rivalry uh, that ended on a John Flaherty game-winning hit to left field. Um, You know, Mr. November, the home run, the walk-off home run in the World Series against the Diamondbacks in 2001. Um, Jeffrey Mayer. We obviously, that, that was his first big Yankees moment. And, you know, again, right place, right time. He was in the spotlight. Uh, he was presented the opportunity to do something. And you know what? A little good fortune goes a long way when you reach the level of someone like Derek Jeter. So it, it is amazing just to think about all of the moments that he, even, you know, his 3,000th hit. And the fact that he became, I think at the time, the second player to ever hit a home run for his 3000th hit and, and ironically um the first the other two players to do it i think were both teammates of his i think wade boggs was the first who was obviously a teammate of jeter on the 96 world series championship team and then a-rod did it a, a longtime teammate of his on the uh, left side of the infield but i remember that day where he hit his 3000th hit it was his, he came in uh david price was pitching for tampa bay it was in 2011 Jeter came in two hits shy, uh, got a base hit his first at bat, came to uh, the plate in the second uh, time, I think it was the third inning, crushes a home run off David Price to, to the left field bleachers. He finished that game five for five. And in a tie game in the eighth inning, I believe, he got his fifth hit up the middle that ended up being the game winning hit. I mean, he just, he yes, Jeter was presented with more opportunities to perform under the spotlight. Um, but he also performed at a high level under the spotlight at a much higher rate than anybody else who was given those opportunities. So look, that's just such a big part of his career. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm excited to hear his speech. Uh, you know, I know Jeter had a reputation for um, not really giving much to the media during his career. You know, short answers. You didn't really get a lot of information out of him. That was kind of part of his mystique. That was kind of part of what made him who he was, you know, he, he didn't bring a lot of drama onto himself. He kind of tried to, you know, stay out of the fray a little bit. So I, I'm interested, you know, but I, I've always thought that he has good perspective, you know, when, when he did the rare times that he has opened up, um, I've always thought that he has had good perspective. So I'm, I'm interested to hear uh, the comments that he makes uh, in Cooperstown on Wednesday. And look, that's the end of that era. I mean, Mariano's in two years ago. He went in Jeter's in. Um, you know, that's it. You know, that all the numbers are retired. You know, um, Pettit's number's retired. Bernie Williams's number is retired. Uh, Jorge Posada's number's retired. Obviously, Jeter and Mariano Rivera's numbers are retired. You know, who's the next Yankee to have their number retired? I don't know. Is it Sabathia? I mean, I think Sabathia certainly is going to be given that consideration to having number 52 retired by the Yankees. He won a World Series. Great guy in the community. Ace of the staff for a decade. You know, one of the faces of the franchise. He's, he's probably the logical next guy. But he wasn't part of that era. You know, I'm 42. So Yankee fans in particular, but even sports fans and baseball fans that are around my age range and even older um, because it had been such a long time since the Yankees enjoyed sustained success prior to Jeter coming up in 1995. You know, when you look back on what that era of baseball was, and I know the Yankees had some built-in advantages financially, um, 
et cetera, that, but they took advantage of those uh, built-in advantages, you know, and it, it led to a tremendous, tremendous amount of winning. And, and Jeter was, look, Mariano was the most dominant part of that, just in terms of what position he played and what he contributed to that. But Jeter was the face of that because Jeter was the guy who was out there every single day. You know, Mariano was out there every other day, every third day. When he was out there, you knew he was out there and he was absolutely dominant. But Jeter was the face of that whole thing. He was the guy who was out there every single day. So he goes into the Hall of Fame on Wednesday. And again, that that is kind of like they always said that's the last thing for the great player. You know, you, you, you play your career you earn all the accolades. If you're lucky enough, you earn those championships and you get to win those championships with your teammates and for your city. And then your career starts to come to an end and they celebrate you. And, and Jeter obviously went through all of that. And then you kind of go away for a while. I mean, they have the five-year waiting period. It's going to turn out to be six years because this ceremony was postponed by a year because of COVID. And look, Jeter has never completely gone away. I mean, he's the CEO and a part owner of a Major League Baseball team. So his presence is felt in baseball to this day with the Miami Marlins. But here in New York, it hasn't been. So, you know, it'll be an opportunity for Yankee fans of that era to, uh, you know, not only celebrate him, but celebrate that team. And, and, And again, it's just such a remarkable career that, you know, the fact that he, of course, it was him who hits the first walk off home run in the month of November by like what, two minutes, three minutes. What was it? 1203 on the Yankee stadium clock. When he hit that home run against the diamondbacks in game four of the 2001 world series, just an incredible, incredible, really example of seizing all these opportunities that were presented to him. And he'll be justly rewarded for that on Wednesday, going into the baseball hall of fame. All right, let's get you caught up. Yankees trailing two nothing in the bottom of the fourth inning. To the Blue Jays and the Nationals and the Mets are tied at one in the top of the fourth inning in D.C. Back to the football. I mean, interesting thoughts from Connor Rogers, who hopped on with us in the last hour about I agree with Connor in his assessment of the Jets. Uh, he's very high on these skill position players. You know, it has happened before where especially at wide receiver, there's a high draft pick. And I remember the Corey Davis draft pick when it was made by Tennessee, and it was controversial because, you know, it it seemed to be a little bit of a reach at the time. And then, of course, he never really fulfilled the promise that's expected of a top 10 draft pick while he was in Tennessee. But it doesn't mean that he's a bust. I mean, you've seen it before where you can go to another environment And you could thrive or succeed. And the Jets are hoping that that's the case here. And then the Elijah Moore thing. I mean, he's been outside of Zach Wilson, of course, and all the attention paid to him. Elijah Moore's been the talk of of training camp. So, you know, try to imagine a world for a second with the Jets having this exciting young offense. Yeah, they're going to take their lumps. But the outside of the line is pretty good. At least you hope it is. All right with Becton and Vera Tucker. All right, the interior of the line needs to improve, okay? But you've got this quarterback who we haven't seen Zach Wilson do anything right now that would tell you, boy, this guy's in over his head. Again, is he going to be a pro bowler this year? No, but he doesn't need to be. He doesn't even need to be a pro bowler next year, although that would be nice. And then if he, alongside these young weapons, can develop together, Davis is still not that old. Obviously, Elijah Moore's a rookie, just like Zach Wilson. These guys can all develop together. And that's what 
Connor was talking about with the timelines matching up because the Jets for a decade have been unable to figure out that timeline. They've got young skill position players and a veteran quarterback. They've got a GM and a head coach who didn't come in together and don't see eye to eye. And they finally seem to have everything on the same page. They got the GM in Joe Douglas, whose drafting I think has been pretty good. They've got the head coach in Robert Sala with the good resume, with the great demeanor. We haven't seen much else from him. That remains to be seen. But so far, again, you can't point to anything that Robert Sala has done and say he is in over his head. I mean, I got to be honest with you. When the Jets introduced Adam Gase and when the Giants introduced Pat Shermer, I looked at both guys the day of their press conference and I'm like, this isn't going to work. I swear, you could just tell sometimes. And look, if the guy does come in and command a room like Robert Sala does, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work out. But the Jets never had that with Adam Gase. The Giants never had that with Pat Shermer. And the results on the field certainly back that up. So the timeline finally seems to be matching up for the Jets and the best thing they have at their disposal this year there are no expectations now that's going to change in a hurry just ask Joe Judge because he and the Giants were in the position last year where there were no expectations and they exceeded those expectations now there's expectations you got guys like me and others saying hey you need to win the division and again I can't reiterate this enough the reason the Giants need to win the division this year is because of the division I'm not saying they need to win the AFC North with the Ravens and the Browns and the Steelers. I'm not saying they need to win the NFC South with the Buccaneers and the Saints. I'm not saying they need to win the NFC North with the Packers or the AFC West with the Chiefs and the Chargers. The Giants are in the NFC East. Washington's a really good defense, but they're a bad offense, and they have Ryan Fitzpatrick, who's exciting and fun and a great story, but also inconsistent as their quarterback. So that's Washington. How about Dallas? Dallas had one of the worst defenses in NFL history last year. And then their quarterback went down with a horrible ankle injury against the Giants. Now he's back, but what's he going to be? I think people are overlooking the fact that he, I think the people are looking at Dak Prescott like this is a normal season for him. Like he's going to come back and put up 5,000 yards like he was on pace to do last season and resume the trajectory he was already on. That is not a foregone conclusion. And I don't know what's going on in Philadelphia. I know they always play the Giants well. But the Giants played them extremely well last season. They beat them once in one of their most impressive games of the season at MetLife Stadium. And then there was that Thursday night game where they would have won if Evan Ingram could have made a catch. So the reason why I say the Giants should win the division is because of the division itself. So the Giants, after no expectations last year, have those expectations this season. And you know what, for the Jets, it would be great if they're in that position next year because that would mean that year one under Salah and Wilson was a success. And that's what you want this season to be for the New York Jets. You're listening to Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN.